0: Well, I want to talk to us uh, this morning in light of the fact that we are celebrating Christmas. And of course, we know that for believers, every day is Christmas, right? Every day is a celebration of Jesus Christ and His coming. But I want to talk to us this morning in light of the fact that we are celebrating Christmas and then New Year's pretty soon. I want to talk to you about hope. Hope. Um, The other day I was uh, eavesdropping on a conversation at a um, local supermarket uh, between... Um, the person uh, at the check stand and a customer and this lady was in front of me and she was they were charging all of her um, groceries and apparently these two ladies knew each other so they started getting into a conversation about Christmas time coming up and New Year's and all of that and asking each other questions about family and all of that and one lady said to the other so you have big plans with family coming in and the customer says to this other lady well I, I really I, I think so I hope that my son comes home for Christmas. And this other lady said, oh, he doesn't typically come home. Well, I don't really know. It's kind of a hit and miss given his job situation and all of that, whether he's going to come home or not. I really hope that he comes home for Christmas this time around. How about you? How about yourself? Do you have family coming in? And one of the after this lady expanded upon that for a few seconds, she says, you know, my biggest uh, thing is I hope that they give me some time off uh, to be able to celebrate uh, uh, Christmas time and New Year's with family and they started talking about this this uh, their plans as if they were very much up in the air and it reminded me of the fact that that's very typical of how people talk about the idea of hope right as sort of this nebulous ambiguous concept that's very undefined you know when people talk about hope things that they hope for uh, in our society and in our world what they're really talking about is wishful thinking You know, I hope that um, this happens, or I hope that that happens. And obviously, um, whether that particular thing comes to fruition um, is based upon whether their circumstances are just right for those things to happen. So hope in our society is this elusive or ungraspable reality, isn't it? Um, It's more like chance. Something may or may not happen depending on changing circumstances beyond your control. That is what the concept of hope in our world, um, how people talk about hope. And yet as believers, as Christians, we know that the Bible speaks of a hope that is far, far different than the way that the world talks about hope, right? First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, listen to God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, believer, Christian, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. As Peter writes to these believers who are being, beginning to be persecuted, he writes, beloved, not about some hope that they, um, uh, some chance thing. He talks about something that they can bank upon. Right, this inheritance is their hope, and he says this is a hope that is not subject to decay. This is a hope in this inheritance that is not going to be polluted or corrupted. This is a hope that you have that is unwavering. Why? It's a confident expectation because of the fact that it rests upon God's character to fulfill His promises in Christ Jesus, right? That's the hope that 1 Peter 1 talks about. And that's really... For us who are believers, what hope is about. Hope is a confident expectation, a sure, reliable, and dependable reality because our hope, beloved, is, is based upon a faithful God who fulfills His promises in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The one that we are celebrating this morning. Now, I realize that for many of you sitting in here, you've, you've heard this many times. You've heard from this pulpit and all the other little pulpits all over the church that our hope is based upon God's character and promises in Jesus Christ. That is why we have hope. But how often do you really stop to ponder, to consider, to contemplate? And I would say in response to that contemplation, to really relish upon God's faithfulness to His promises fulfilled in Scripture. How often do you do that? especially this past year as you read your Bible, how often do you zero in on the promises of God and are reminded on the pages of His Holy Word of just how faithful your Heavenly Father is to fulfill His Word in human history? So that you're driven to, to praise Him as the songs called us to, as we reflect upon truth and God's promises. How often do you do that? I think especially during Christmas time, when we celebrate the incarnation of our Savior, it's so important for us to really pause in the midst of all of the busyness in our culture, social media, and everything that we have to do, and shopping, and all of that, and the craziness of being uh, cut off by somebody on the street in Burbank or in the surrounding areas, right? How important, beloved, it is for us to pause and reflect upon redemptive history as Christians. See, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is certainly something that was realized at Jesus' incarnation. When he came to earth, he came as a man. But do you realize that our hope was something that was set in motion a long, long, long time ago in human history? In fact, if you want to go before human history, Ephesians chapter 1 says speaks of the fact that God from before the foundation of the world, which means before He ever created the universe, set forth a plan to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was before human history. God set forth this plan from before the foundation of the world. But then, as we know, there was human history. Where we see the outworking of God's wonderful, wonderful plan. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us this morning to look at human history on the pages of God's Holy Word and be reminded of God's faithfulness to keeping His promises. Because, beloved, listen, without the faithful promises of God being fulfilled, we would have no hope this morning. We would have no hope. That's how the world without Christ is described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, if God doesn't step in human history and fulfill His eternal promises, we have no hope and we have no reason to even sit here. We are of all men and women most to be pitied because really we have no hope, right? And so my approach this morning is to simply look at some passages of Scripture that speak to us of God's faithfulness in securing our hope And I want us to do this for our mutual encouragement. I've been so encouraged looking at some of these passages and just reflecting upon, wow, no matter what the obstacle was, especially human sin and corruption, God kept His promises so that I as a believer can look at Him in His Word and be encouraged and be comforted by a faithful God. And my aim also for you who don't know Christ this morning is that as you see the fulfillment of God's promises, that your Creator keeps His Word, even in human history, that you would base and place your hope upon God, who Scripture says is the God of all hope. So this is what I want us to do this morning. And I want us to reflect upon two primary points. If you're taking notes, we're just going to look at hope promised and hope realized. Hope promised and hope realized. This is sort of a topical message. Okay, I know you're not used to me doing topical messages, um, but... Sort of a topical message, and you have to be eager beavers flipping around through the pages of your Bible, okay? So make sure that you have your Bibles ready to go, because we're going to go to various passages. So let's look at hope promise first and foremost. How often do you stop to consider that what we are celebrating each and every day, but especially during Christmas time in the coming of Jesus, was something that was promised some 6,000 plus years ago? How many times have you actually stopped and paused in the midst of the busyness of life to focus upon the fact that, wow, the incarnation of Jesus was something that was from long, long ago. And I want to show you this. Go to Genesis chapter 3 with me. Genesis chapter 3. Those of you who are already planning, um, have your Bible reading plans ready to go, how many of you have already picked a Bible reading plan? Hands? Oh, man, we got to get on the ball, right? These are the chapters that you will be getting into at the turn of the year, right? And you remember Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the wonderful creation of the universe, of this vast, beautiful universe. And over and over again, we're told in the first couple of chapters of Genesis that God created a universe that was good and indeed very good. And then God created men. And as the crown of his creation, he gave man dominion over it all, didn't he? Everything that man can enjoy was in this garden, and he forbid man one particular thing: not to eat and partake from the fruit of the knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Enter Satan, didn't he, in chapter three of Genesis, and it says that Satan deceived the woman. He began to, to talk to the woman. All the while, by the way, as later on we find that the man is standing there, not stepping in to lead his wife, right? Because he later on partakes of the forbidden fruit as well. But, the, but Satan deceives the woman. He causes her to begin to question God's goodness, to question the fact that God had good intentions for them. And she is deceived. And they disobey God, God by partaking of the forbidden fruit. With the result as we see in Genesis chapter 3, that God renders consequences to each of them, to the serpent, to the man, and to the woman. We see the curses upon the man and the woman in verses 16 and following, but he addresses himself, if you notice, in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, to the serpent. The Lord God, verse 14, said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Was God simply just hating on serpents at that moment? We know that's not the case, right? Because look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. The Lord tells the serpent that there is going to be this ongoing war between the seed, the descendants of the woman, and the descendants of the serpent. There's going to be this kingdom of light and this kingdom of darkness, as we know it later on. That's going to be there's going to be this ongoing battle between the two sides. But look at the middle of verse 15. Because this is key for us, as far as our hope goes. He This future representative of the seed of the woman, he shall bruise. And really that word is crush. He shall crush you on the head, he says, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God curses the man and the woman and pronounces cursing on the serpent as well. But he does it, beloved, notice in verse 15, in hope, in hope. That even though there's going to be this ongoing war, there's going to come forth someday a representative seed of the woman who is going to deliver a death blow upon the serpent, upon Satan. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ. But at the beginning of the movie, you see see Jesus who is fervently praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember that scene. And it's a powerful scene. Whether you fully agree with the movie completely, all its aspects or not, I certainly don't. But there's a powerful scene at the beginning where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is in, in deep, fervent prayer, the Lord Jesus. And remember how there's a the serpent begins to make its way towards the Lord? I think it ends up trying to wrap its, its, itself around his leg. And what does the Lord Jesus do? Stomps on the serpent and crushes it, right? This is essentially, and in that movie, this is what they're trying to point to. To this promise in Genesis 3.15. That even though Jesus would go to the cross and suffer and die on the cross, i.e. the serpent, Satan, would bruise our Savior. Jesus, upon His death and resurrection, He would crush the serpent on the head and deliver a final, fatal death blow to the serpent, right? That's what that is portrayed. Well, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 happened in real time, didn't it? And that happened when Jesus went to the cross... And even though there were from a human perspective individuals who took him who, who were responsible to put him on the cross Jesus rose from the dead conquering sin and death right and in so doing crushed the serpent's head satan's head with a fi- with a death blow Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says this it says that the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it and then it says in hope And what Romans chapter 8, verse 20 is saying is that back then at the creation, God cursed creation, subjected it to futility, and He did it, however, in hope, beloved. In hope what? That one day Jesus would lead a full throttle of people who are followers of Him into victory, right? Conquering sin and death. Well, we see that our hope begins in the Garden of Eden with this promise of a seed. And boy... Did we need hope, right? As you begin to read through the book of Genesis, we see that darkness comes very hard and fast after Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar with the early chapters of Genesis, and I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 12, you know how much of this um, hope was needed. Because what begins to happen in the aftermath of Genesis chapter 3 is that we begin to see the fullness of corruption and wickedness in humanity. To the point where in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it says that God even got to the point where He was sorry that He had made man. And He was grieved in His heart. So what does God do? God sends a universal flood to, to wipe out the earth. But even then, He was a gracious God in that He chose a man by the name of Noah, if you remember. And He preserves this man's life and the life of his family. And the life of many animals. So God wipes everybody out in the ensuing chapters of Genesis chapter 3. And now it's from Noah in the aftermath of the flood. It's from Noah and these three sons of his that all of the nations of the earth will come. Ham, uh, Ham, Shem, and and Japheth. And the question, if you are an eager reader as I was, even as, an, as a young believer, as I began to understand the contents of Genesis, the question that kept arising in my head was, okay, from which one of these three sons now will God channel His promises of a deliverer? Where will this ultimate representative come from? Which one of these three guys? And of course, as the narrative in Genesis continues, we know that it was Shem, one of the sons of of, of um of Noah, through whom now God is going to channel the promises. And from Shem came a man that we're very familiar with, but excuse me, by the name of Abram, who later on was was uh, renamed Abraham. God didn't choose Abraham because he was such a great guy. God didn't choose Abraham because he was a genuine Yahweh worshiper, a worshiper of the one true God. God chose Abraham, beloved, and this is going to be an ongoing theme in Scripture. God chooses individuals not because they are righteous in and of themselves. It's because He is a gracious God who wants to keep His promises, right? So He chooses this man by the name of Abraham. And look at verse 1 of chapter 12 of Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. God calls upon this man to basically, he summons him to to abandon everything that he knows. Comfort, security, family, livelihood. And Abram responds, and God is going to bless this man in verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And listen to this, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God summons this man to follow after him, and he promises, I'm going to give you a great name, a great nation, including both land and people, descendants, and I'm going to bless you. And this blessing, you are going to be a channel through whom I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. Keep that on the back of your mind that it is through Abraham that now this blessing is going to come and ultimately the seed. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15. Here in Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise to Abram and he's going to make a covenant with him. Genesis 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And if you're Abram, you're probably thinking at this point, if you know some of the background of the story, his wife is advanced in years, Sarah. Abram is past his prime, and Abram doesn't have a child and yet God has promised to him that he's going to bless him. And later on it says that his descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. A myriad of people are going to come forth from him. And yet he doesn't even have a son. So naturally, notice what Abram says in verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given me given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. If I can improvise a little bit, God, you're promising me that you're going to bring all these descendants forth from me. I guess it's going to be Eliezer, my servant, who's going to, through whom the promise is going to come, right? God answers him in verse four. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, "This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir." And he took him outside and said, "Now look forward toward the heavens." And count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And this statement in verse 6 is historical for our Christian faith, isn't it? It appears numerous times in the New Testament, verse 6. Then Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram's response to God's promises is simple trust. And therefore, he became the pattern of those who, by faith, are justified in the sight of God. He is made right before God. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Of course, the Lord goes on now to make a covenant with Abraham. And one of the um, ceremonies that would take place when there was a covenant made between two parties is that animals would be cut in, in halves. And the and the, the two parties who were making the covenant would pass between the two cut, split pieces of animal to signify the fact that if either of them failed to keep the terms of that covenant or contract, the same fate would await them. So both parties had to be very aware of the terms. But if you notice, in this text, we're told that God puts Abraham to sleep. Notice in verse 12. Now when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord obviously prophesied to him about the, the captivity of Israel and Egypt for four hundred years, and then his deliverance of them. All this time, beloved, that, that God is that God is going to make this covenant with Abram, Abram is asleep. And notice in verse seventeen. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Listen, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your descendants, I will give this land." And even gives them the outline of where the 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 outline of this this land. That smoking oven and flaming torch there in verse seventeen represent the glory of God, the presence of God. And what is the point in all of this? That Abram is asleep and God is essentially forming uh, uh, forming an unconditional covenant with Abraham and saying, so shall it be done to me if I don't keep the terms of this covenant. God is taking full responsibility for bringing the terms of the covenant to pass. And of course, we know that it was impossible for God to go back on his word, right? It was impossible for him to do that. This unchanging God cannot go back on his word. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. God made a covenant, an unconditional covenant to Abraham on that day. That from his loins would come forth a blessing. That Abraham would be the channel through whom he would bless the world. And it was going to be unchanging. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. You know, as the story unfolds in the book of Genesis, the promise is given to Abraham. Abraham dies just like every other man does in the book of Genesis because of sin. And then the promise is narrowed through Isaac, the son of the promise. And then to Jacob and then Jacob has a bunch of sons. And by the end of Genesis, again, the eager reader is asking himself or herself, From which one of these sons of Jacob will the promised one the deliver? From back in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen coming, we get the first another hint that this promised one will be royalty, that this promised one will be a king. Notice in Genesis chapter forty nine and verse eight. This is Jacob in the latter stages of his life. Blessing all of his sons. And notice what he says of Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? And then listen to verse 10. The scepter shall not depart From Judah, nor the ruler staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What was a scepter and and a ruler staff, but objects or emblems of, of authority, right? Of sovereign rule. And so already, even in the blessing of of Jacob towards Judah, we get a hint that this one who is going to come forth as the promised one is going to come now through the tribe of Judah, and he's going to be royalty, isn't he? He's going to be royalty. Whoever the promised one is will come through the tribe of Judah. He will be a royal, sovereign one who has authority and one day will rule over all. Well you know how the story continues to develop as the nation grows. Um, there's a growing nation uh, at, at the end of Genesis chapter 49 and 50. you know that the people are in Egypt and they begin to grow God fulfills his promises to Abraham and the people continue to grow myriads and myriads of Israelites. there's a Pharaoh that arises that does not have it does not look upon the, the Israelites with favor. And so he begins to mistreat them, and the people begin to cry out at that time for a deliverer. And the Lord brings about a deliverer, doesn't he? Moses. Moses becomes the instrument through whom God delivers the, the, uh, the Israelites from Egypt. And then comes Joshua, who is the one who was mentored by Moses, Joshua, to then um, uh, help the people begin the initial conquest of the land of Canaan. And I say initial because that didn't fully come to fruition during the time of Joshua either, that the people took full possession of Canaan. But you've read the pages of of God's Word, beloved. Over and over again, the nation went wayward. Then came the period of the judges, where it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. People went wayward. And then came the period of the kings, where God allowed the people to have a human king because they had rejected him as the king. And my heart, every time that I read through the word of God, cries out this way. Where will the promised one come from? Which one of these kings? Because king rises, king falls. Every single king in Israel is a wicked king, right? So where will this one come from? Is all hope lost? Has God forgotten about his promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? And of course, we know that he has not. Go with me to Second Samuel chapter 7. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 I love this text. This is what is known as a Davidic covenant chapter. Where God now is going to make a covenant with David. David has reached a point by this time in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 where he is he is at the peak of his kingdom that God has graciously given him. And he desires now to build God a temple. He wants to build God a temple. He communicates this to St. Nathan the prophet in the early verses of 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, verse 1. Now it came about when the king, li- uh, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a ha- house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, and essentially, if I can improvise again, the Lord says, David, stop right there. I am the one who has done all these things. I have established you. I will build you a forever kingdom. And we see in verse 8 that God essentially begins to reiterate the promises of Abraham now to David Verse 8, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. Sound familiar? Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And then in verse 10 he talks about David having a place, a land for his people. And God is going to establish David. And in verse 11, he talks about the fact that he's going to give rest to David from all of his enemies. But notice verse 12. Notice what he says. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, literally your seed after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And we know on the human level who this is, right? This is Solomon. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know later on that it was Solomon who built God a physical temple. But beloved, on the, on the other level, there's somebody else that he is talking about. Because we know that David died physically. Solomon died physically. Every king that came after these guys died physically because of their sin and the wages of sin is death. He is talking about somebody future isn't he as well. How is he going to establish the throne of David's line forever? It's going to be through a future one who is the Messiah, through him. And so here we see again God's promise of a future one who is going to come and be a deliverer. After David, you know what happened? Kings came, kings, kings went, Kingdoms rose to power and fell. Israel acted wickedly over and over again. So what does God do in the Old Testament? God sends prophet after prophet after prophet who continues to warn the people to repent and return to God. But did Israel obey? They did not. They didn't repent and return to Yahweh. So Israel was judged by God because of their idolatry and rebellion. And various kingdoms conquered Israel. Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and later on Rome. And again, the reader asks himself or herself, was all hope lost? As you're seeing all of this wickedness in the the history of the nation, has the nation forfeited God's promises because of their sin and rebellion? And the answer is a thunderous no, right? No. Fast forward 200 years later, after the promises to David and the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, listen to what Isaiah chapter 7 says. This is Isaiah Somewhere around um, the eighth century BC, prophesying Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. What is that sign? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. It's a beautiful verse that uh, that so oftentimes during Christmas time we think about and ponder, isn't it? Matthew understood the nature of this child very clear. When after, in in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22, right after the angel tells Joseph of the fact that she will conceive the baby, he writes this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. Now all of this, the announcement to Joseph of this baby Jesus, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us beloved that's 750 years isaiah's prophecy in isaiah 7 that is 750 years before the arrival of our lord to earth in human form amazing faithfulness of god that he would do that and then isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7 turn there with me isaiah chapter 9 there are so many wonderful uh, prophecies in isaiah It's one of the most difficult books to read for us as far as prophecy goes, but one of the most enriching books. I know a small, immense small group here at our church that actually went through this for, what, two or three years or so, just going through the book of Isaiah. But listen to Isaiah in chapter nine, in the midst of pronouncing future judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem, the southern, and the southern kingdom. He says this in verse six, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Is it just a human being that he's talking about? Look, notice what he says. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You didn't know that I was going to actually quote that, right? And you sang a song that actually quoted this verbatim, right? Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. There's an allusion and a reference again to the to the Davidic covenant. In Second Samuel chapter 7. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And notice from then on and forevermore. This one that Isaiah is prophesying about has to be more than just a human king. Because he is going to be established forevermore. And then notice at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That means that there's no possible way that this plan is going to fail that the Messiah will come forth. I want you to take note of the fact that this is this is a sad time when Isaiah is writing this is a sad time for the nation. They have been idolaters. They have been rebellious. And from a human perspective, you would be justified in saying that they shouldn't have any more hope. And God shouldn't keep his promises in the midst of all of their rebellion. And yet God, through his prophet Isaiah, is still saying, I will be merciful to you. I will keep my promises to you of a future deliverer and conquer. Isn't that amazing? That our God would be so faithful that way? Well, as I said God's word tells us through the prophets that God judged Israel by having them fall to various kingdoms: Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and all of that. And again, was the is hope lost? And the answer is no. Listen to Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, prophesying somewhere around 450 BC, 450 years before, approximately before the coming of Jesus. In Malachi chapter three and verse one. Behold, I am going to send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet The prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. You know what? This is prophetic language. 450 years before Jesus of the fact that before the coming of the Messiah, there would be one who would be the the messenger, the forerunner, who would come to announce the Messiah. And Malachi is foretelling this truth. And of course, we know who this messenger and forerunner is, right? Because in the New Testament, hope is realized. And if you remember the opening words of the gospel of Mark Chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Those are two quotations from Isaiah and Malachi. Who arrives on the scene as Jesus is about to start his public ministry? It is John the Baptist the messenger, the forerunner and fulfillment of the prophecies of Malachi. And John the Baptist comes announcing Jesus as the great hope for mankind. It is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one. Hope is realized. Here he is. And John the Baptist, over and over again, keeps pointing to this one, John the uh, the Baptist to Jesus Christ, as the long-awaited fulfillment of those prophecies. This is why the first line of our New Testament The gospel of Matthew opens with these words, the record or the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know why Matthew opens up that way? Because he's trying to point the fact that this is this Jesus, the Messiah goes all the way back to David, all the way back to to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies made to those individuals from long, long ago. Beloved, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 was written 4,000 years after the promise given in the garden of a seed. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 was given 2,000 years after the, the promise given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15. 1,000 years after David is given the, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you will, 500 years or so from Daniel who talked about the Son of Man in his prophecy... Who would come someday. Amazing faithfulness of God. And I wonder how often we actually rehearse these promises in God's word as we're reading through our Bibles throughout the year. And I pray that you would set yourself to plan your Bible reading this way. I'm going, as I walk through my Bible, to track all of the promises concerning Jesus Christ and to be able to feast and then respond and praise and worship toward my great Heavenly Father who has been so faithful to fulfilling His promises in His Son. See, we need to approach God's Word with a sense of devotion and with a sense of worship. So oftentimes, what do we do with God's Word? We open up the Bible and it's we're just clocking in and out of our times of devotion. But how oftentimes do you really relish in in the truth concerning the character of God and His faithfulness? We need to have that kind of an approach. That we would praise God. I want you to see this in Luke chapter 1. Turn with me there to Luke chapter 1. How did Old Testament saints, because the gospel still speak, um, the individuals there who are faithful, were Old Testament saints. How did they respond when the angel appears to them and talks to them about this baby who is to be born in fulfillment of the pro- of prophecies how do they respond look at luke chapter 1 verse 46 and mary said my soul what exalts the lord and my spirit has rejoiced in notice god my savior for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary praises God in the light of this baby who is going to grow in her womb, who is the son of God, for the personal privilege that she feels because of God's blessing toward her. But then notice how she expands upon this in verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty handed. I mean, why is why is Mary expanding and expanding and expanding upon upon the, the blessings of God? Because she recognizes, beloved, as she makes evident in verses 54 and 55, that this Messiah, this little baby Jesus is the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham from thousands and thousands of years ago, right? Look at verse 50, 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants, notice, forever. Descendants, there's literally seed. Old Testament saints in the gospel of Luke understood that Jesus, the Messiah, was the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and to David and to the prophets, right? Notice Zechariah. Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 67. This is John the Baptist's father. He's filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 67. And he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Listen to this. In the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. We just saw that, didn't we? To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And then he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give to to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of his sins. He's speaking specifically there about John the Baptist because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias knows. He understood the prophecy of Malachi and he understood that his son John the Baptist was that messenger and was that forerunner but who does he praise and who does he lift high? He lifts high the name of a faithful God. A faithful God who has fulfilled his promises to them. Beloved, listen. If anything should happen for us, especially during Christmas time, as we reflect upon the faithfulness of God, it is that we should be driven to exuberant praise toward our gracious, faithful Heavenly Father. Amen. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what disappointments you have. I don't know who has passed away these last few years and this is such a sad time for many of us who have lost loved ones. I don't know how much the busyness of life has sucked the joy out of you. I don't know what sins you're struggling with. I don't know what burdens you may have. But I want to tell you right now that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to rejoice and to praise God in light of the fact that Jesus, your hope, has come. Because you have forgiveness in Him. Because in him, you have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Because in Jesus, you have a treasure chest of infinite spiritual blessings so that no matter what is going on in life, you and I should be driven to praise. And we should be telling people in our communities and in our neighborhoods and in our homes, every context where God has you, you should be proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, especially during the holiday season. Amen? I mean, these saints, Old Testament saints, understood That God was a faithful God. And they needed to praise Him and worship Him in the light of what He had done. They had anticipated this Messiah. What many of them, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, what they didn't understand, they had this messianic expectation, but what they didn't fully understand was that this deliverer would first and foremost conquer through death by dying on the cross for sins. That's what they didn't understand. And that's what we need to understand, that at his first advent, Jesus came for the purpose of dealing with our sin. He lived a perfect life. Why did he do that? Because none of us are able to measure up to God's perfect standard. None of us are righteous. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners by nature. And we prove the way that we live our lives. That we are wretched, wicked human beings. None of us can ever measure up to God's perfect standard. What did Jesus at his first advent, his first coming do? He, he lived a perfect life. Perfectly fulfilling all of God's righteous commands. So that those who believe in him. That perfect life is reckoned to our account. Then what did he do? He suffered and he died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and I. Why did he do that? Because you and I can never, ever, ever, ever fully pay for, pay the debt that we owe for our sins. None of us can. So Jesus suffered as the blameless, spotless lamb on the cross in the place of sinners made full payment for our sins. God poured his wrath upon his own son because of his great love for us and he and he, he 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 crushed his son on the cross for you and I for your personal sins and for my personal sins But then we can that's not where the story ends right What did Jesus do on the third day He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Why did he do that? Because you and I cannot ever overcome sin on our own. We cannot overpower death. Jesus Christ alone did it. He rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. At his first Advent, beloved, if this Christmas time you celebrate anything, it's the fact that you have received the forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus, and therefore you have hope in Christ. That's what you have hope in his name for those of us who have believed in him. Can I ask you this morning? What is your hope based upon? What are are you banking the future state of your soul upon? Is it Jesus Christ? His person as the God man? His atoning work on the cross? Is he the one that you are trusting in? For the salvation of your soul? Or is it other things? Is it a particular belief system that doesn't have Christ in it? Is it, are you indifferent to the message of Christ? Are you trusting in your own works, thinking that somehow your good works are going to outweigh your bad ones, your evil ones? Can I remind you, God doesn't grade on a curve. What is his righteous standard? His standard is that you be perfect, right? As your, as your father in heaven is perfect. None of us can measure up to perfection. Only Christ did that. So our works can save us. Humanitarian efforts can save us. Going from time to time to church or tithing from time to time, religious observance devoid of a heart for Christ and a love for Christ and faith in Jesus Christ doesn't save anybody. Only faith in Jesus Christ alone saves. We're talking about hope right now. You know what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says about those who exist outside of Jesus Christ? Is that they are those with, with no hope and without God in the world. We who are believers, who are Christians, who have committed our lives to Christ, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to have to live with no hope and without God in the world. To live for your self exaltation and not li- live for the purpose for which God created you to give him glory is to live without hope, it's to be hopeless. This Christmas season, my desire and my, and my plea for you, if you don't know Christ, is that you would contemplate the great faithfulness of God as revealed in His Word to send forth one because of His great love who came to die for sinners such as you and I. And there is no sin that God cannot forgive you of if you're here this morning. There's no sin that you could ever commit that Jesus Christ did not die for. But you need to repent and believe. You need to turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus Christ alone. What about for us who are believers beloved those of us who are Christians I love what Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says that those of us who have Christ in us we have the hope of glory we have the hope of glory and Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ and turn with me to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 We'll end here. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. We walked through this great little letter some time ago. Notice to what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior christ jesus notice that there are two mentions of the word appear one is in verse 11 for the grace of god has appeared and what what happened at jesus's first advent he brought salvation to all men that's why christ came the first time to secure our redemption Our purchase out of slavery to sin that he might save us and set apart for himself. But notice that Christians in verse 13 are also doing what? We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If Jesus at his first advent secured salvation for us, the forgiveness of sins by virtue of his death and resurrection, beloved, according to verse 13, our hopeful expectation should be in the glory that Jesus is going to bring the second time that he comes, right? What is he going to do? He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to establish a a kingdom. And all of us who have put our faith in him will be with him. So there's a future aspect of our hope. We can rest assured. That if God fulfilled His promises, as we just saw in the Old Testament, to bring about the coming, the first coming of His Son, He will surely bring to pass His promises that He is coming a second time to judge the living and the dead. Amen? So we must be sure that we are secure in Him. That our hope is not in anything else. For there's nothing we can do to secure salvation for ourselves. That our hope is in Jesus Christ alone, our Messiah. All right? Well, we're going to sing a beautiful song the herald angels sing. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you as we look at the pages of your holy word for your great faithfulness. Lord, As even as we read our Bibles this next year and as we delve into your wonderful, precious word, Lord, help us to be people who think deeply upon your character, who think deeply upon your word and who praise you and who, as the psalmists call us to, that we would respond in worship in the light of your great faithfulness and your wonderful character. Father, thank you during this Christmas season for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that we get an opportunity to worship him and to tell a world that doesn't know him about one who can forgive them of their sins. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.